Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Windrush, the trauma continues. The government has reneged on three promises it made to migrants from the Caribbean in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s. The so-called Windrush generation, named after the first boat from the West Indies to arrive in 1948, when the so-called mother country was desperate for labour. Many of these hard-working people and their descendants fell foul of the government's hostile environment created by the then Prime Minister Theresa May. Some were deported from the country they called home. Others lost their jobs or were denied government services and had to pay for treatment on the NHS. When the scandal came to light in 2018, the government promised to compensate victims but Home Secretary Suella Braverman has now U-turned on pledges to establish a migrants commissioner, to increase the powers of the independent Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration, and to hold reconciliation events. We'll be hearing shortly from Glenda Caesar, who has her own Windrush story to tell, and who has campaigned for years to help others who have been similarly affected. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer telling us what to say. There are no large corporations leaning on us to support their interests. We rely instead on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, non-partisan journalism, exposing corruption and holding the powerful to account. So you can find out how to subscribe, and I would encourage you to do so if you can, over at bylinetimes.com. Head over to subscriptions at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Glenda Caesar. And Glenda, before we talk about what Suella Braverman has done, let's just talk through your own Windrush experience, because this is quite a tale. Thank you, Adrian, for inviting me. Well, my story as a Windrush victim, survivor, I call myself also, and campaigner. I came to this country when I was three months old as a baby in the early 60s. My father had come over to sort of like pave the way for my mum and my other siblings to come over. But I was the first of four to come over as the baby. So I practically lived here all my life, three months old, knew nothing else. I became a mother at a very early age, at the age of 16. And by 18, I was a mother of three. So my main concern was just to build a home for my children, carry on with my education and get to where I wanted to. I was always encouraged by my parents to become a civil servant. And mommy had strong beliefs in the motherland, as they called it, when they came over. And she and daddy always encouraged us to get a government job. Either you work for the police, the post office or the NHS. So it's something that was stuck in my head, but I was my interest was it to become a typist. And obviously I excelled in administration. Once my children were at school, took on the job for the NHS and administration, got to very high profile positions within the mental health administration. So I had another baby at the age of 28. So that's my four children. But once I had got into my positions, my children were growing up and they were able to form for themselves or form their own families. I decided I wanted to retire. But it's not as easy as that just to leave a full-time position and just say, oh, I'm going to stay at home. So I acquired a part-time position as a GP practice administrator not too far from my home. I was really happy. I was a good and it was walking distance. 
But I got interviewed by an interim manager who was quite happy with me. At the time, she did ask me for a passport. I thought, okay, you know, I haven't got a British passport because I couldn't afford to go on holiday when you're raising children at that age. But I had acquired a Dominican passport. And the reason for that is that my mother passed away in 1998. And that's when I really found out I wasn't British because all along I thought, well, you know, I'm British. Everything was working okay for me to benefit everything else and being able to get jobs. But it didn't really bother me because I wasn't even interested in going on holiday. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll just apply for a Dominican passport. But they had told me that they needed my birth certificate. So my sisters had to go over to Dominica. Unfortunately, my mum passed away in Dominica. So they acquired my birth certificate and brought it back. And I thought it was going to be a simple process. I could just get a passport. No, it wasn't like that. I said, okay, I'll leave it. Still got into my job, got this part-time position. And it was there that the manager who had taken over had said that he needed to see my British passport. I explained to him, I haven't got it, but I've got over 20 years service with NHS administration. No, he was not happy at all. He persisted. He contacted the NHS lawyers. They came back. I was put in this category as I wasn't meant to be in this country. And then I got terminated. Gross misconduct for not having the right to work or live in this country. Just so I'm clear on that, Glenda, then. You lost your job, even though you'd been a really hardworking member of staff and you'd got a an excellent CV. You yeah. lost your job because under the rules that applied at the time, you were declared not to be British and not to have the right to work here, even though you'd lived here from the age of three months old. There you go. At the age of 50, you're telling me that I don't belong in a country which I gave birth to children in this country. And I worked hard. I worked within the trust uh, implemented systems, trust wide, you know. So I gave my all because that's what I was brought up. This is your home. How did that feel at that time, Glenda? Once they had done that to me, it wasn't until I went to go and say, okay, let me go claim benefits. That's when I really found, oh my God, I don't belong. I really don't belong. What was that? But hold on, you're stealing from me. This is this is my investment. I paid my national insurance contribution so I could come back for it. And they were like, no, sorry, you can't. And then it sort of like daunted on me. And I was like, well, what do I do now? But when you're a single mother, you find ways for you to provide. My mother, God bless her, my father was a tailor. My mother was a machinist. So they've always showed us how to provide. So I would do the um, odd events decorating for family members, undercut myself, you know, not charge a lot, just for me to have some kind of funds coming in. I've got male children who wear trainers once or twice and they're no good, but I found use of them. I'd clean them up, sanitize them and sell them on, on eBay, just so I had some kind of funds coming to support myself. My children were very good. They also provided for me financially. And I've got a daughter who's deaf. So she's on benefit. She's got my learning difficulties, but she provided for me as well. So I had a strong support system around me, I must admit, and, you know, my other family members just to keep my head above water. But when it started to affect my youngest, who was born in 1988, and he was refused a passport, that's when it all daunted on me. And I thought, oh, my God, I've put him in a position where he shouldn't have been. So this is your son who, like all of your children, was British born, but who was then told that he too wasn't considered British. Yeah, was not even allowed. He became depressed. I became depressed. He wouldn't speak to me. He would lock himself in his room. I obviously had to apply for some kind of ID for him. So I got him a Dominican passport as well, which now I carry for. And he had taken a two-week holiday to the Dominican Republic. 
and on his way back in, he phoned me and he said, Mom, they're going to deport me. I said, to where? Where are they going to deport you? You're born here. He said, Mom, I don't know. They said that, you know, um, I haven't got a stamp on my passport. I was like, oh, my God, I'm frantic now because I can't do anything because I've been classed as illegal as well. And about two to three hours later, he came through the door and he showed me in the passport they'd given him two months to regulate his status or they were going to deport him. And I was like, but where are you going to deport him to this country? He had his birth certificate. He had his driving license with him, but that still wasn't good enough. And he became more and more depressed and it made me become depressed, you know. And like I said, I contemplated suicide. I thought if I go, perhaps things would get easier for him. But since 2009, I had been unemployed. I think this happened to him in 2017. And then in 2018, in the middle of me doing an events job, I got a call where uh, someone said, oh, there's people on the telly going through what you're going through. And I said, really? She said, yes, I've been contacted. Would you tell your story? I said, of course. By that time, I had accumulated oh, papers everything I could find, anything I could find to prove that I was meant to be in this country. And once they had told me, the media had got in contact with me. I had been on the television. The Home Office then contacted me. But bearing in mind, within that time, I had tried to regulate mine and my son's status. I had paid for um, British status letters, which cost us £100 each, indefinite leave to remain, which cost me nearly £400 each. But they still kept the funds sent refusal letters. They were adamant that they wanted something on my father. It would be my father one year, it would be my mother the next year. And every time I got something, it would be like, no. But they could find nothing on my dad, even though he was a homeowner in this country and he worked as well. But they could find nothing. So that really affected us. But once the media got hold of it and um, the Home Office had contacted me, I was in shock. I was like, oh my God, they're calling me. And seven days later, I became a British citizen. Like, okay. <laughs> you mentioned your son and the threat to deport him and the impact that had on you. You had an experience as well. Yeah, I did. My sister saw how depressed I was getting. So she actually said to me, look, I'm taking you on holiday. I said, okay. She took me to Dominica. I think we spent about two or three weeks. And on returning, I handed my passport in. The gentleman looked at it and he said, have you come? On holiday, I said, no, I live here. He said, oh, well, there's no stamp in your passport. I said, because I live here. This was issued in the embassy over here. He said, well, hold on, let me go and have a check. So before he went, I said to him, look, if you find anything on my father, you'd be doing me a favour because I can find no paperwork on my father, apart from his death certificate and my mother and his marriage certificate. So he came back and he said, yes, we can see where you've done a search and we can find nothing either. But... Unfortunately, if you leave this country again, you will not be able to come back. So I was stuck here, could do nothing. So you were allowed um, back in, but warned that if you left the country, the country which you'd spent all of your life bar three months in, you wouldn't be allowed back. I wouldn't be allowed back in. So that's when the journey actually started. I thought, okay, well, there's something wrong, but... What could I do? A single mother, you know, trying to do the best that I can, just keep my head above water and obviously my sons as well, the youngest one, and with the help of my children. But once the story had broken and they had said I had become a British citizen, which I had known all along, the senior officers who interviewed me asked me, Mr. Caesar, do you have any questions for us? And yes, it came to mind. I was like, 
okay, what's the implication on children born to people like myself? And straight away they were like, they said, oh, no, don't worry. And they called my son's name. Oh, no, he's got his status. I'm like, oh, okay. So that made me cry. All along I hadn't cried. I, I tried to remain strong, but that actually made me cry because it was like he was given his freedom in his own country. And I thought, yes, well, that bit of the war is over with the Home Office. I just wonder how it makes you feel. And you, you talked about at some point considering taking your own life. This is your country. It's every bit as much your country as it is my country. You've worked hard, you've paid into the system. And yet for many years telling you that you weren't British. How do you reflect on that, Glenda? I was really disappointed. I felt as if my mum had rejected me and just thrown me to one side. I don't need to know more. I don't want to talk to you anymore. And that's how it made me feel because I'm proud to be British. I'm from Hackney. I tell everyone I'm, I'm Hackney. <laughs> you know, I'm proud. And my children are as well. So for successive governments to put these legislations in place, it made me feel horrible. I just lost all trust. I did everything what my mum and my dad came to this country to do and they encouraged us to do. And, you know, I lost all faith and hope. I really did. Yeah. And you're still campaigning now in 2023 for people who are going through what you've been through. Yeah, definitely. I'm still coming across people who are still hiding, let's put it that way, because they still have this belief that they're going to be deported. And there is many, there is many of them who are still going through this, who came over here as children in the 60s and who were rightfully citizens, because at that time, most of the Commonwealth countries was run by Britain and given the right to be British when they came over. And now think, after seeing someone, an ordinary single mother, housewife, black, myself, like, oh my God, that's me. So they sort of like identified with me and I was quite happy for me to be very open on the media about my story so I could let them know there's many of us out there and they're still coming forward. Some have been compensated, some are still a bit weary about it. And what I'm finding is the generation above me because obviously I didn't come in 48 I came in the 60s some of them are even saying I can't be bothered it's too late now sadly to say dying without even getting what is rightfully theirs or their status and regulated there are so many of these stories out there there was the case of Albert Thompson who'd lived in the UK for 44 years after coming here from Jamaica he went to the hospital for treatment for prostate cancer and was told that unless he could produce a British passport, he would be charged £54,000. That was despite the fact that he paid his taxes for more than three decades. He was also evicted and ended up homeless for several weeks. There was a, a guy called Michael Braithwaite who came yeah. to Britain in 1961 from Barbados, lost his job as a teaching assistant, teaching children with special needs. Very similar to your situation, Glenda, because his employer said that he didn't have the paperwork. So we had Theresa May and her then Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, saying we recognise that this has been badly handled. But the after effects of those kinds of incidents, they're not easily brushed away. No. Definitely not. I mean, there's plenty more. Vernon Vanrill, who was a boxer for the UK, who went on holiday to Jamaica and ended up staying there 13 years. 
the thing is, is that once you turn 16, you're in this country, you're given a national insurance number. So there is a record of you somewhere. So why not check that? I don't understand. And as someone who's been in administration and set up systems, if I had lost a patient, I would have been reprimanded. There's no doubt about that. I would have been hauled up in front of someone and said, you did this wrong. But no one wanted to take responsibility for their own systems, which they didn't monitor and they didn't look after. And we had to pay. The Windrush community had to pay for their mistakes. They put in the compensation in place. But is that working? Mm. With many faults. (laughs) Many faults. There's slow payments and payments have been reduced. And the very first time that I got paid, about 10 years of being unemployed, not for my own fault, of being able to claim benefits, the very first offer they gave me was £22,264. And I opened that letter, and I'll never forget, because I had just attended another Windrush victim, Hubert Howard's funeral. And I opened that letter, and I was like, this is an insult to me, because even if I was claiming benefits, that would not have covered the amount of years that I was unable to get benefits. So I literally went public with it. And the reason me going public was that I had a very strong support system. But when I was going to other meetings... There was people that I saw in these meetings who, as a child growing up, were vagrants on the road. And I thought, well, who helped them? If I had a support, no one was helping them. And when I saw that figure on that letter, I was like, oh, no, I have to say something. And I stood up and I said, yeah, this is an insult. When we are not peasants, don't throw breadcrumbs at us. We're hungry, but we're not that hungry. You've got to do something right. And I think if they hadn't been challenged, they would have continued throwing anything they wanted at us because I think they knew that this community, the Caribbean community, they don't like to hang their dirty laundry out in public. They prefer to keep quiet. And another reason I say that, I knew a friend of mine for over 40 odd years, our children grew up together and I never knew she was going through this until she saw me appear on television and then she said, I'm going through this. And I took her along with me and it was me and her together who were on the same day got our um, citizenship. But this is what I'm, sh- I'm showing you. And I think that they understand that about this community where they don't like to talk. And we're, we're seeing this now because the, the cohort before me, are oh, no, no, it's okay. We'll just keep quiet. We're all right. And the hostile environment was developed during Theresa May's prime ministership. And it was an attempt to crack down on what the government regarded as illegal migration. I think there are a lot of people who say that nobody can be illegal. You're a person, whatever your status. But in your instance, and that of many tens of thousands of people from the Caribbean, whatever the aim of the hostile environment, you were not here illegally. You had been welcomed to this country. You'd been encouraged to come. You were told that you had a vital role to rebuild this country after the war and then in the decades that followed. I just think it's a it's an episode that shames Britain. It definitely does. You cannot invite someone and then turn them away. Our parents came here to the motherland hoping to make better for themselves and their families because this is what the UK promised them. Come over. Yes, we're going to be one big happy family. And that's what a lot of the Windrush community believed in which also brings it up to what is happening now. They asked Wendy Williams to come and have a look at this, try and sort this out first. She put in 30 recommendations and the then term secretary, Savage Javid, was quite happy to go along with the conversation, Priti Patel, now, our now home secretary to say the three major ones, which is 
the reconciliation events, which would have been our voice, the people who's been affected, our voice for you to hear how you can improve on things. And the Migrants Commissioner, also the Chief Inspector of Board of Immigration, would have been listening to us, would have heard exactly how to improve on things to make it better so something like this doesn't happen again. But then to reject them, no, you've lost the confidence of the community once again. So how do we trust you? How? How are you going to mend this? Politicians have to remember we are the people who put them in place to work for us. You know, listen to the people. It's something that I had mentioned when the Windrush National Organization had their very first international conference. And the Home Minister, I think it was Simon Foster was there at the time. And part of my speech was listen to us. Listen to what we have to say. We're the ones that's being affected. That, that's all we're asking you is to listen to us so we can build this confidence back up again. Yeah, and Wendy Williams was the person responsible for pulling together the the Windrush inquiry which came out with these recommendations. I mentioned the hostile environment. The government doesn't use that kind of phraseology these days but as Home Secretary Suella Braverman has targeted the people attempting to cross on boats across the channel and there is still a generalised anti-migrant rhetoric. What do you feel about that given your experience as a migrant and as someone who's representing many people who are themselves migrants or who have descended from migrants? Well, the reason for most people wanting to come to the UK is to better themselves and to help the UK. And many of the migrants, as they put, who are coming here are hardworking people. Me, I believe in giving everybody a chance, give them a chance. But it's a matter of, no, we don't want you keep away. But when you do need us, you do call out for us, you know, and we're the ones that's helping you to improve all of the services in the UK. We're trying our best anyway. And the reality is that the Windrush scandal hasn't gone away. It hasn't finished yet. What would your message to Suella Braverman be? She needs to come and meet with us. We're still waiting for her to meet with us and come and listen to us. Listen to us before you make your decisions, because we have a lot to say. If it wasn't even with the scheme, through people like myself, um, Jackie McKenzie, Desmond Jadu, Patrick Vernon. If we hadn't spoken up, I don't think this scheme would have improved. And there is some improvement, but there's a lot more to be done. So she needs to sit down with our community and listen to us. That's what we're asking for. That's Glenda Caesar then, who campaigns now through the Windrush Movement UK, and she referenced there, amongst others, Jackie McKenzie, the Head of Immigration with Lee Day Solicitors, who have done a lot of work with Windrush survivors, and she joins us now. Hi, Jackie. Hello. You know, one of the most touching and disturbing things that Glenda said in that interview was that there are still people older people in the Caribbean community settled in the UK who are kind of hiding from the authorities because they feel that they could yet be deported, even though we're supposedly five years on from the Windrush scandal. Is that something that you've come across? I have come across people who I've had to sort of almost cajole to engage with the process of either applying for status documentation or for compensation. And their initial responses as to why they didn't want to was because effectively they didn't trust the Home Office. You know, most people in this community, and it is more or less people from the Caribbean Commonwealth, 
but also people from South Asia and from West Africa in particular have had some experience of, you know, the Home Office, not in the most pleasant of ways. And, you know, and I know the Home Office has a dual role, you know, it has its enforcement role and it has its role of issuing out visas, which we say is the good job. But too many people have unfortunately been at the wrong end of the Home Office and uh, and so they don't trust them. The fact that the scandal happened in the first place hasn't aided that. They did say at the outset that there'd be no enforcement. So if somebody came forward and they didn't quite hit the criteria, would they be subject to enforcement? The Home Office said they wouldn't, but then shortly after saying that actually made an arrest. Somebody who happened to be a constituent of David Lammy, you know, who's quite vocal on the Windrush scandal. So we all got to learn about it. So that's one of the reasons why people aren't coming forward, because, you know, originally the Home Office thought there could be up to 50,000 people affected. And so far, only about 15,000 have come forward and for status documentation of that, about half of them are Europeans, because anybody can use the Windrush scheme to be able to sort of resolve their status. It isn't just for people from Commonwealth countries. So and I think of those who are from the what we call the Windrush Generation cohort, there are about 6,000. So hardly anybody has really come forward. There's a number of reasons. Some of that is because people are frightened and don't trust the Home Office because of the experiences of people in the community. Some of it is because people think, well, why would I bother now? And these are all the various reasons that I've heard from people who I've said I've had to really encourage. You know, I've been here for 70 years, not had any paperwork. My life's almost over. I'm getting my pension. I'm not seriously affected in the way that some of the younger people are. I don't want to have anything to do with the Home Office, so I'm not bothering. A large number of people are actually stuck abroad, particularly in places like Nigeria and Ghana, where the numbers are woeful. Less than a thousand people have actually received status documents from those communities. And, you know, their pattern of migration to the UK was very different. They came, they studied, they got indefinite leave to remain, and they went back to their countries to do jobs, but thought that they were settled in the UK and could come and go. They didn't think for one minute that, you know, if they'd stayed out for more than two years, they'd be permanently excluded or would have to go through some really complex visa route to get back. And the Home Office are not accepting those cases. So a very, very large number of people from Nigeria have actually been refused entry. And then my final point about why the numbers are so low is because I think that the Home Office haven't properly made this scheme, you know, clear. What is it? What is it for? Who's eligible? And some people, I'm always amazed by this because I thought there wasn't anybody who hadn't heard of the Windrush scandal, but there are people who haven't heard about it. And, you know, when the uh, EU settled status scheme was being promoted by the Home Office, they gave, it was £50 million pounds to 90 community and voluntary sector organisations to be able to raise awareness. Now, I know, of course, there's scale, isn't there? You know, it's 3 million EU citizens, although they've had about 5 million applications. I don't know how that's worked out. So I know it's scale, but even if you were to pro-rata that down to what they believed the cohort of people affected by the scandal is, they've given virtually nothing to community, voluntary sector organisations. Who are the people that those affected want to go to? They want to go to community groups like the Windrush National Organisation Movement that you spoke about with Glenda, 
They want to go to those sorts of community groups to be able to avail themselves of help because that's where they're going to find people like themselves and people they trust. Now, they have given £500,000 or set aside £500,000 more recently for work, but it's not for advocacy and it's not for representation. So a lot of that money is being wasted on all sorts of community events which aren't really reaching the people it ought to reach. Glenda mentioned the Williams Report, or to give its full title, the Windrush Lessons Learned Review, which was published in March 2020. Now, we know that at least three of the commitments or the recommendations in the Williams Report will not now be met. The government has confirmed that it won't meet the pledge to establish a migrants commissioner, that it won't meet the pledge to increase powers of the independent chief inspector of borders and immigration nor will it hold the reconciliation events but you're concerned that there are more of the recommendations that haven't been met either so there were 30 recommendations yeah. and i was a member of the independent advisory group that works alongside wendy williams so i know how much work and effort and how much public money would have gone into that exercise. And uh, the Home Office say that they've implemented 21 recommendations so far. But if you recall, the recommendations were about uprooting deep-seated problems to do with the culture and the organisational structure and the inflexibility of the Home Office. So these are things that are going to take years and the Home Office said that it implemented 21 of them. Well, what does that mean? What are the outputs and outcomes? What are the experiences that those of us who use the service are expected to see? What are the conditions? None of it is clear. We're not seeing any differences. And what we're expecting as a result, not just for the Windrush generation, but for everybody who uses the services of the Home Office, so that could include from tourists to asylum seekers and refugees, things appear to be getting worse. So if, there are, if they have implemented those recommendations, then they've probably not implemented them very well or it's made no difference. And I don't think that was the point of Wendy Williams's very, very thorough work. In terms of the recommendations that are being dropped, the one on the Migrants Commissioner, I mean, and these are not radical recommendations, but that's quite a, a soft, important role. You know, you have a victims commissioner. It's really quite tragic that the Home Office want to reduce any sort of voice that migrants might have. Why would you want to do that? If you say we recognise the value of migrants to this country and we want the system to be fair and rational and flexible, why would you try to take out of the system a voice that would speak up for those people? And that's all the Migrants Commissioner was going to be, was a voice and an advocate, and hopefully somebody with a bit of power, you know, because there isn't no such thing at the moment. I mean, there are lots of lawyers and campaigners and NGOs and, you know, we all get a very hard time in the press and from the Home Office and occasionally we win a case and people affected by the various laws and, and, and policies get support that way. But the Migrants Commissioner was really to work with the Home Office to try to 
stop some of the problems from happening in the first place. They're a really, really important role, but, but you know, not as I said, not majorly radicals. So it's unbelievable that they wanted to, to cancel that. The other one, you know, getting or, or reducing the role of the um, independent chief inspector of borders and immigration is also another one that we don't quite understand, or rather we do understand it, but it's extremely disappointing, is because that's a role of scrutiny. The Home Office ought to be scrutinised because the decisions they're making and the way they do it, it's not just so much the decisions. I mean, the laws, policies, rules, regulations, and even international rules and laws enable them to do quite a lot of what they do, but a lot of it's to do with about process. And to not want to be properly reviewed or held to account or be scrutinised, I think, is a really tragic situation. You know, if you look at some of the work that's been done in the past, uncovering some of the atrocious abuses that have gone on immigration detention centres and the way in which people are held in the immigration detention centres, the conditions. This is important. You know, we are a hugely civilised country. You know, we're responsible. It was our lawyers that wrote the 1951 Refugee Convention. This is the sort of thing that Britain is great for. And all of a sudden, we don't want to be open to scrutiny and we don't want migrants to have a voice. The recommendation about the um, reconciliation events with the community, I think, shows me anyway, as somebody from the Windrush, I'm second generation Windrush, it shows that the Home Office, the Home Secretary and the government hold the Windrush generation in very, very low regard completely, because this is an easy thing to do. I don't personally think it was going to make much of a difference because I think there'd be symbolic events. But the fact that the community wanted them, the fact that it got into the 30 recommendations, the fact that this is the year when the country is gearing up to support or to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the arrival of HMT Windrush to say, I don't want to have reconciliation events with people in that community, says, I don't care about people in that community. And it's shocking. Jackie, thank you very much indeed. That's Jackie McKenzie from Lee Day. I should say that we did speak to the Home Office and invited a minister on for interview. That request was declined. They have, however, sent us a statement saying we remain absolutely committed to righting the wrongs of Windrush and have paid or offered more than £64 million in compensation to the people affected. They also add that they are making progress, they say, towards the vast majority of recommendations from Wendy Williams' report and believe there are more meaningful ways of achieving the intent of a very small number of others. And they say that through this work, we will make sure that similar injustices can never be repeated and we are creating a home office worthy of every community it serves. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. Don't forget, you can support our work by taking out a subscription to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper, non-partisan, calling out corruption, holding power to account. Find out how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. I just want to say as well, thank you very much indeed to Harvey White, who assists with the production of this podcast. Very invaluable production assistance it is as well. I'll see you again very soon, but for now, thanks for listening. Cheers. Bye-bye.